You're listening to RUF at the University of Kentucky. Here at RUF, we believe that you're never so good that you do not need God's grace, and you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. For more information, check us out on Instagram at UKRUF or at www.ruf.org backslash UK. Thanks for listening. thought would be helpful is for me to start off and share kind of my story as kind of a little bit of a test case, and then um, Abby can, is this some, am I, is this, is it like running something? It's kind of a test case of sorts, and then Abby can get, get more into the clinical stuff, more professional stuff. Um, but let me read, and this is fun for me too, I see, I see uh, like, Faces that grew up in my church. It's so fun to see you all in college. Anyway, sorry to bear ship. Here we go. Uh, Psalm 42. Let me just give you a few verses here. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. You, uh, you may have heard the uh, the song that's written after that. You know, it's all flowery. Like. Well, this soul, uh, this, this, um, what's going on here in, in the psalm is, is not like this flowery um, love song to God. It's, it's a starving uh, deer in the desert. Just, I'm about to die if I don't get God. Um, and so the music doesn't do the psalm justice. It's a, it's a frantic, I'm dying. I am literally dying. My soul is dying, and I've got to have God. But listen to this. It says, um, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? So it's this soul panting after God, dying for God as a, as a, a deer dying in the desert, and they're just mocking him, saying, Where is your God? Um, and, then, and then I love this verse 5. He says, he says, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. But then he says, but my soul is cast down within me. And here, two times, the psalmist says, uh, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? And you know what he's saying when he says that? He's basically saying, what is wrong with me? I can't figure this out. What is going on in my soul? Um, and anybody who has tasted depression or anxiety knows exactly what he's talking about there. What is wrong with me? Why can't I get up? Why, why, can't, um, why can't I snap out of this? And he even tries to preach to himself in Psalm 42. He says, hope in God, trust in God, but it's to no avail. He immediately actually says, listen, hope in God. He says, but my soul is cast down within me. That term cast down, uh, was familiar to them. It's a term used to describe a condition that uh, can happen with sheep. Uh, they're, they're um, I don't know if you're into the, uh, if you're, if you're into uh, the art of sheep herding, but uh, uh, sheep being cast down was a, was a big issue for shepherds uh, because they would, at times, they accidentally roll over on their backs and when this happens, they literally get stuck. You can YouTube this. A, a sheep, uh, a sheep, a lamb could not get up um, when they're on their back, and they literally just sit there 
flailing until a shepherd can come and pick them up and roll them back over. Um, and they'll stay there uh, flailing and screaming until it dies if somebody doesn't uh, come and help them. And that condition is called being cast down. And you'll, you, when you read the scriptures, you hear that language a lot. And so here's what the Psalms is saying. Here's the imagery. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Meaning, literally, my soul can't get up. I can't get up. Anyone who has endured anxiety, depression, knows that language and that imagery, and so does the Bible. The Bible is honest about the proclivity of our souls to fall and not be able to get back up. And you need to, you need to be um, fully aware of that. Either some of you have experienced it, or um, there's two people in the room. People who go through this, or people who love people who go through this. That's, that's how prevalent uh, depression and anxiety has become. You, either you have it, or you love somebody who has it. So everybody needs to be aware of this. And the Bible's very honest about it, but the problem is that the church, not so much. It's deeply stigmatized within Christian circles. And so um, what I do when I speak on this is I like to kind of share my story of what happened to me as a way to kind of break the ice and destigmatize uh, this struggle that so many of us have. There was a time in my life where I would have probably rolled my eyes at the idea of, you know, getting college students together to talk about depression and anxiety. Um, and now I've become somewhat of the, you know, the depressed, anxious guy in, in our denomination that everybody calls. Uh, so what happened? Well, God mercifully gave me a season where um, he allowed me to experience what I previously could not understand. Um, there is depression that is more clinical and uh, consistent in nature, and then there is a seasonal depression, um, and, it, and that seasonal depression can be just as intense as clinical depression, and that's what happened to me. Um, you can call it a nervous breakdown, uh, you can call it a mental breakdown, you can call it acute stress disorder is I think the more modern term for it. You call it where you want, but basically for six months, fall 2011 through winter 2012, uh, my soul was cast down and I could not get up. Um, God took me literally to the edge of the abyss and made me stare into, um, into that abyss for a few months, um, just let me sit there in it and gave me no relief. Um, now my misery, took the form of more acute anxiety, um, although uh, uh, that is so, anxiety and depression are really two sides of the same coin, and sometimes you can't even tell them apart. Uh, They're so closely related. But mine was, took the form more of anxiety, that there certainly were days of deep depression. Now when I say anxiety, um, those who have never experienced what I'm talking about will think maybe nervousness or stress. Uh, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about an anxiety that um, is completely and utterly debilitating. Um, I'm talking, talking about spiraling down into uh, the depths of fear and existential dread and uncontrollable intrusive thoughts such that I could not literally function in life. So what happened to me? I went from somebody who thought, I'm not even sure this depression anxiety thing is real to a person in the throes of it. Um, here's what happened. I, I think my breakdown was convergence of many things, and that is really important to note up front here. Uh, this is a very complex struggle, 
and uh, we need to treat it as such. Um, so, for example, I do think my breakdown was a result of uh, sin in my life. I wasn't living a secret life. I didn't have um, a hidden addiction or something like that. But there were, there were sinful patterns lurking in my heart that I honestly had never seen before. I didn't know were there. Things like just a really ugly and unhealthy ambition, a need for control and arrogant self-sufficiency that relied on um, my own strength, my own gifts. Patterns like this were going on in my life that I didn't even recognize or see. I think my breakdown was a result of my physical unhealth. Um, I wasn't exercising. I was eating terribly. I wasn't sleeping. I was overworking. Um, I just wasn't taking care of my body. It was a mess. I think my breakdown was a result of external factors. I had a, a toddler at home that my... I'm scared I left my phone. I had a, had a new toddler and an infant in, in my home at once. I was transitioning into senior leadership here at the church, um, dealing with trauma and stress that comes from pastoral ministry, uh, specifically pastoral ministry at a church like um, with a culture uh, like this one at this church. I don't know. I don't know how many of you all go to our church, but our church, I love our church. I love everybody in our church, but we got a crazy church. Uh, they're full, full of really overachievers and professionals and perfectionists and smart people and successful people and important people, and they freaked me out. And, um, you know, I was feeling the pressure of those expectations um, in the pastoral ministry. I think my breakdown was a result of a lot of pain that I had never properly addressed from my story. I had never dealt with um, things that had happened to me, abusive things that had happened to me. I thought the Christian thing to do was to ignore and move on. I did a lot of hiding, a lot of pretending, a lot of rewriting my story. Does that make sense? That's what we do. We rewrite our story to make it be something that it's not. I did that a lot. So uh, what led to my despair? I think the answer isn't as simple as we want to make it out to be. It was this convergence of many things, spiritual, external, emotional, physical, all of them came together and crushed me. Um, it began with um, strange things going off my body that I couldn't explain. Um, dizzy spells. Um, I, was have, I, I was real dizzy, couldn't figure out what that was. I would have these episodes where my throat would close up. I feel like I couldn't breathe, you know, pressure on my chest, these things like that. Um, and then I, you know, I'd have these moments where I felt like my mind was just stuck in overdrive and I couldn't slow it down. Um, started being overwhelmed with just dread over things um, that I had done a hundred times before, like, like just something like this, like giving a, a talk or counseling or teaching or preaching, things I've done forever. I've started to have this like huge dread over these things. Now looking back, uh, this is all classic symptoms of an anxiety disorder, but I had no idea at the time. I had no idea what was going on with me. And that only compounds anxiety and depression. Is, is, it's so stigmatized, and we don't talk about it, that when you start going through it, you have no idea what you're going through, and it freaks you out even more, and it only makes it worse. Um, and so I just kept hiding and pretending and pressing on in my own strength like I had done my whole life. Uh, but the more I ignored it, the more intense it became. That's another thing about depression and anxiety. The more you ignored it and tried to hide it, the more intense it becomes. Uh, so I started having panic attacks. Again, I didn't, I didn't know what that was, but I would have these moments where I thought either I'm dying or I'm going insane, neither of which were, were pleasant options. Um, but even still, I still didn't tell anyone what was going on with me. I kept it hidden, kept on moving forward. 
And then um, October 9th, 2011, uh, I call it the day that my soul was truly cast down to where I can't get up anymore. Um, it was a Sunday, and I spent uh, the entire morning upstairs uh, holding back a panic attack. I was so good at faking it that nobody could tell. I preached a fine sermon that got great compliments, but inside I was literally freaking out the entire time, having a panic attack while I'm preaching in front of hundreds of people. Um, it was just a nightmare, a living hell. And I remember giving the benediction that morning and saying to myself, I am never going to preach another sermon again. This is the last time I'm going to stand up here and do anything like this. I'm done. And then that night, I was up all night in just kind of one continual state of panic. I was afraid to fall asleep because I thought if I fell asleep, I would wake up, you know, in a hospital or something like that. And so finally, by five in the morning, I just gave up hiding and I told her I woke Abby up and I said hey there's something wrong with me and literally as I said those words there's something wrong with me I just collapsed and it was like just the floodgates opened and as soon as I told the truth I was underneath that flood for about three uh, months at its worst um, it was exhausting just to do routine things like take a shower brush my teeth eat sleep I couldn't take care of myself. I would just have to force food down. Um, if I could sleep for a few hours, it was a miracle. I lost interest in everything um, that I used to love, which is um, a very common symptom. I couldn't read. I couldn't I just watch a Kentucky basketball game. I couldn't watch sports. Normal conversations, normal routines, like a grocery trip, a, store to the grocery, a trip to the grocery store would send me into a panic attack. I couldn't shut my mind off, um, just bombarded all day long with existential thoughts and, and, and vain imaginations and fatalistic thinking and dread and stuff that I would, I would express to her and she would, say, she would say like, that's just not true. And I knew that it was, the, the thoughts were, were silly, but I just couldn't convince myself that they were silly. They were owning me. Um, I, I had to ask her on every daily routine, Am I going to be okay? Am I going to be? I had to, she had to tell me over and over every day, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. And forget about practicing my faith. Like, I couldn't read scripture. I couldn't listen to a sermon. I couldn't believe the promises uh, that I have believed my whole life. The most Christian thing I can manage was like a simple prayer, countless times. I prayed this over and over and over again Lord Jesus, friend of sinner, have mercy on me. That's all I could pray for three months, over and over again. And God was utterly distant. Um, zero assurance of his favor. Uh, zero assurance of his love. Zero assurance that I have it back again. My wife, my closest friends had to assure me over and over again in those basic truths, truths that I had told thousands and still tell a lot of people um, that I had preached. They had to tell me those truths and I still couldn't believe them. It was a living nightmare. All right, how did I come out of it? And this will lead me to Abby here. Um, I'm not. Let me say this. I'm not sure I'll ever be out of it. Um, it's still something that I think about routinely, almost daily. It is never sees me like it did during that season, but um, it it, it be kind of it, it kind of remains this um, always lurking, painful thorn in the flesh mercy of God, um, to where when I'm falling into bad habits, 
Um, when I'm relying on my own strength and whatnot, I'll start feeling it come back. Literally, it's as if God says, you sure you want to go back there kind of thing? Um, and so it, I think it'll be this humbling thing in my life for the rest of my life. But how did I get to the point where I can actually function and do what I do and, and whatnot? Well, that answer is just as complex as what got me into it. Okay? We want there to be a simple answer. We want there to be a silver bullet. There is not to anxiety and depression of clinical, on, on, you know, on extreme levels. Um, there was a lot of things the Lord used to heal my soul. I needed a doctor. On the morning that when I told Abby, the first thing she did was call um, some of our pastors and our um, associate pastor here, Mark Randall, came, picked me up. Um, <laughs> he, I remember he walked in the room, saw me in the fetal position, and, and said, uh, I'm taking you to the doctor. And he literally had to, like, put me in his car and take me to one of our elders at our church as a doctor. He got me to the doctor. And, um, and the doctor talked about my health, talked about my exercising, my diet, my sleeping, about do I take a day off? Do I have a hobby? And, and yeah, he wrote me a prescription for medicine that I took and needed desperately. Um, I know that there's debate in some Christian circles about medicine, um, you know, whatever. When, when you're where I am, when you were where I was, that debate goes out the window. Um, he could have told me to take anything, and I would have done it to, if I thought it would have helped. Um, and so, yeah, so, so my serotonin level, the chemical that, that um, regulates the emotions in your brain, my serotonin level was depleted. And I needed a, an SSRI, which is an antidepressant, to uh, get, build my serotonin level back up to where I can functionally think and control my emotions and whatnot. And I took it, and it worked. Um, I needed a good counselor. I had never done serious therapy. Um, I, 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 I always view myself as a counselor, not the one being counseled. But again, when God brings you to the end of yourself, you'll try anything. So through connections, I was able to get in with a real legend in the Christian counseling world and um, and her work in my life uh, changed my life. She forced me to tell the truth, the truth of my story, my shame, my sins, um, the ways I've been harmed and the ways I've harmed others. Uh, she showed me how the gospel, uh, how, how deep this thing we call the gospel truly can go. Uh, she called me into repentance that went far beyond external actions, repentance of the very dispositions of my heart. Uh, there's a lot of bad counseling out there, but a very trained and anointed therapy is a glorious thing. So I needed that. I, 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 th I needed God's people. I believe it's all my heart. If I were alone in this, um, I would not have survived it. Uh, my community rescued me. Um, what I learned is that when the New Testament speaks to the body of Christ, that isn't a metaphor. That's a literal expression of, of Jesus. Um, my, my community, uh, my friends, other pastors and whatnot, they were the living manifestation and presence of Jesus, um, the voice of the Lord to reassure me, the rebuke of the Lord to discipline me, the, the, the tenderness to comfort me, the strong arm of the Lord to carry me. I, I would not have survived without community. So I need a community. Um, I needed the means of grace. I'd gotten bad habit of just neglecting the disciplines of the faith. Um, and there's nothing like a nervous breakdown to bring you back to the basics. And so um, what I did was not only return to the disciplines of the faith, but approach the disciplines differently. I didn't just uh, study the Bible. I clung to it. Um, I meditate upon it. I recounted it to my soul over and over throughout the day. My prayers became more simple, uh, more childlike. 
um, more raw, more emotional. Uh, Sunday morning um, became paramount to me in ways like never before to just be with God's people and, and just bathe in the means of grace. I can remember feeling so safe. I never appreciated, the, of all things, I never appreciated the liturgy as much as I did during that time. I remember feeling so f- safe in the liturgy of God's people. Um, even something as simple as like the Apostles' Creed was so significant. I couldn't say it, but I remember just sitting there saying, I'm just going to let them say it for me, and I'm just going to believe that what they say is true is true, and I'm just going to trust them in that. So I just needed the means of grace. And so if you were to ask me, what led me out of my despair? Um, was it my doctor? Was it my therapist? Was it my friends? Was it my community? Was it the Bible? Was it prayer? Was it worship? I would say yes, yes, yes to all of that. Abby will get into a more clinical perspective. But what I hope you're getting from my story is this kind of this complex conversions that led to it. And it's this complex, uh, robust plan of, that will, that will um, bring you out of it. But let me, before I hand it over to Abby, let me just, uh, ultimately, what did my soul need? And, and, and Sam even already prayed this way. What does a downcast soul need? A shepherd. Uh, so in love with his weak, helpless, and desperate sheep that he's not just going to turn them over and pick them up, but that he himself would lay down his life uh, for us. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are on this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now, to be in that flock does not automatically cure your depression, your anxiety here and now. And we need to be honest about that. But it does give you this uh, certain hope that your depression will, in the end, be no more. The downcast soul will be lifted up forever. Um, So here's Romans 7, 17, and then I'll let Abby talk from a therapy perspective. This is, this is not Romans, Revelation 7, 17. The lamb will be their shepherd. A powerful image there. The lamb will be their shepherd. He is both the suffering lamb who was slain and the good shepherd of his flock. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the promise for those in their depression, in their anxiety, who look um, with downcast souls, who look to um, their shepherd who lays down his life for their souls. My wife is texting. Sorry, I just had a neighbor call a couple times. I just want to make sure. Miss Leanne, I want to make sure she doesn't miss Are our children alive? No, our kids are with my cool. kids. Okay. All right. Um, can we sit and you just sit up here with me? And we'll sure. I'm kind of more of a sitter. Um, okay. Sorry. I'll just let you hold this in case you need this. There you go. This. Um, okay. Thanks for having us. And... Um, so, like Robert said, I um, am a counselor and work with folks who um, struggle with anxiety and depression and a host of other things. But um, I think probably my, you know, my deepest understanding comes from this personal experience, you know, that he went through because there's really no knowledge like seeing someone you love or going through this personally um, to really to show you the reality of it. And um, and so I will say like, well, I'll touch base on his story more. I, I think I wanted to just kind of define what is depression for you, just clinical depression. Um, so I'm gonna read you just sort of, because that was one of the questions, like I don't know if I'm depressed or I'm just like kind of down, because we all experience the seasons where 
I mean, this past year, um, when we think about where we've all been in isolation, and um, I don't know anyone who's not saying, gosh, this has been, I've been down this year, or it's been hard. But how do you know when it could be depression, something more serious, like a clinical depression? Um, so I think Robert did a, a good job of, of explaining that it can come from a lot of different things going on in life. It can come from um, situational, like what was going on with him. Um, it can come from biological um, factors. Um, it can come for spiritual causes, like he said. Um, and it can be mild and short-term or major, which if you're talking about major depression, you can say major or clinical depression, sort of the same thing. Um, and then possibly it could be chronic. You know, it can be something that folks struggle with. You know, their entire life go in and out of depressive seasons. Um, so these are. I'm just going to read you the the criteria for diagnosing depression that I would go to if I was working with someone and see. You know, how many of these they check off. And if you had mild depression, you might have one of these. You may have two of these symptoms. Um, but with clinical depression, what I'd be looking for is at least five of the following nine symptoms. So, um, and, and, and you would want to see these affects, you know, someone's life, their social life, their relationships, their marriage, their life with their friends, if they're not married, or, and also, like, affect the workplace. So, persistent sadness, unhappiness, or irritability is the first one. Um, fatigue, loss of interest in previously enjoyable activities sudden change in appetite, disruption of normal sleep pattern, feeling guilty or worthless, moving about more slowly and sluggishly, um, or feeling restless and needing to move all the time, um, difficulty thinking or concentrating, and reoccurring thoughts of suicide or death. So like I said, to, to be clinically depressed, you just need five of those nine. Um, so as you can see from Robert's story, he definitely checked off you know, five of those um, could have been diagnosed with depression. Anxiety, which is sort of like what a counselor friend of mine says, like a close cousin of depression. They're very, they, they can be very related, although the symptoms can be different. And with anxiety, this is my little DSM for five, it's all marked up here, but this is, this is what I would go to to really look and see um, diagnostically where someone falls. Anxiety would be excessive um, anxiety and worry um, apprehensive expectation occurring more days than not for at least six months. Um, person finds it difficult to control the worry. The anxiety and worry are associated with three or more um, of the following six symptoms persistent for more days than not for six months. Restlessness, feeling keyed up or on edge, being easily fatigued, difficulty concentrating or mind going blank, irritability, muscle tension, sleep disturbances um, and the anxiety worry or, or physical symptoms can cause clinically significant distress or impairment in social occupational or both um, important areas of functioning so as you can see like anxiety and depression there's a lot of overlap there um, and sometimes it takes a clinician to really say what what exactly is going on so so that that's just defining you know from the DSM-5 um, which is what mental health professionals use for their diagnostic criteria, what these things are. Um, another thing I wanted to go over with you guys is one of the questions was, how can I be helpful 
if I see this in someone that I love. Um, and like I said, I have direct um, experience with this, going through this with Robert, and maybe you can speak to some of the things that are more helpful. But um, there's a, a list of questions, I'm relying heavily on this book that is really good. It's called New Light on Depression, um, if you guys want to do some more reading. But um, I think this, there's a section called life-saving questions, and I just wanted to like go over a few of these with you so that if you know someone that's experiencing anxiety or depression, um, these would be some things that you could, you know, you would want to come to them, first of all. I mean, that might go without saying. Robert had a friend that drove, um, how many hours does she need? Yeah, apparently. Why don't you just go call her? Not yet. Uh, Zell. Oh, my. Okay. Our dog, our... Our, our kids and grandparents are out to dinner and our dogs. Okay, well, we'll just right around the neighborhood. tell her to keep her. <laughs> okay. Um, sorry, y'all. It's <laughs> kind of funny. Um, so his friend, I called him that morning that Robert woke up, that morning where he was just bottomed out. And he drove from Mississippi. How far is Mississippi? I don't know. It was from Oxford, probably like seven, eight, eight hours. Yeah, that's what I was going to guess. Like, yeah. got in the car straight away, drove here, and he was here by dinner. And, you know, so I think, you know, being that type of friend to someone, as you see them, like, you are not your normal self. Something is very wrong to you, about you and where you are. You know, being that friend that jumps in the car or goes over to the dorm room and is with them right away. I just think, um, you know, even if that friend can't, like, receive you warmly because they're not in a good place, just your presence with them really matters. And so... Um, these are just some questions like, let's say, you know, you have a friend and, and you're just noticing some things, um, just to say, you kind of seem down, like, is everything okay with you? Or you seem discouraged. Um, and another question you could ask is, do you find yourself more easily upset these days than usual? Like you seem to be reacting in a different way than you usually do. And what you would want to listen for is really gloomy or pessimistic remarks, such as, what difference does it make? You know, nobody really cares anyway, or, um, you know, you would want to um, maybe say, well, you know, it makes a difference to me how you feel because I'm your friend and, you know, I want to know how long you've been feeling this way, that type of thing. Um, and remember that also a lot of times depression and anxiety can be masked with physical symptoms, so that if somebody is having like, chronic stomach aches or, um, you know, losing weight or headaches or, um, you know, any kind of chronic pain, um, you might want to say, you know, have you, how have you been feeling emotionally? Like, tell us, tell me a little bit more about that. Also looking for that loss of pleasure and interest is a real big one with friends. Like if, if all of a sudden your friend, you know, loves, um, playing basketball or something and they're just they don't want anything to do with it or watching basketball like Robert said and not able to do that um, you know that would be something you'd really want to um, listen for or look into um, sluggish and agitated um, maybe friends sleeping in through class and missing a lot of classes that type of thing looking for that um, just unusual behavior um, trouble thinking and concentrating. You know, if someone all of a sudden grades plummet or they're having a hard time um, studying, change in weight, we mentioned sleeping patterns. And then um, just talk about death and talk about their own death. That might be something that you would want to listen for. Um, and 
and I, I do want to I want to save plenty of time for y'all's questions, but um, I think one of the questions on Sam's text to me was, how can I get help? You know, what does it look like for me to get help? What does it look like for me to love people that need help and and extend um, help to them? And so um, Robert mentioned the medication piece, and I just I really can't emphasize that enough. Um, in my counseling practice, um, when I suspect depression um, and anxiety, that's the first thing I'll recommend is just to go to the GP and get a, get a physical and tell them what's going on and get evaluated for medicine. And um, medication, you know, for those that don't need it, doesn't matter all that much. It doesn't make much of a difference. But for those who do and have that, um, that depletion and their serotonin and dopamine and those things that are, make you feel like yourself and feel good. Uh, people will talk about like getting on medicine and feeling like all of a sudden like they're living in color again instead of black and white and like the the world just becomes alive again. And so it is it is just the grace of God, you know, that we're able to to have that, you know, um, what so many people didn't have for so long. And so, um, like I said, medication is is nothing to those who don't need it and everything to those who do. Um, and so I always recommend an evaluation. And I feel like what medicine can do, if it's needed, is it gets you to that place where then you can begin processing what got me here. You know, what, what, was, what were those contributing factors? Um, so I recommend, um, there are a lot of times that can be done with, you know, a pastor, with an, an RUF pastor or with a pastor from church or um, with a, a wise friend, you know, someone who gives wise counsel. But a lot of times that needs to be done with a, a trained mental health care professional um, that can say, I think there's a lot of things that you haven't really thought about that are actually like cause reason to be sad. Like I think you have a reason to be sad and let's explore that together. So, um, and, and that's, you know, part of what I do. And, and I have not yet worked with someone who has depression or anxiety who does not have a reason to have those things in their life. You know, they may, most times people don't have any clue what that might be. They might have a little clue, but like Robert said, there's been so many times they've rewritten the story of, of what happened or of how things were growing up that they don't know they have a reason to be sad. Um, but pretty quickly, you know, we're able to understand that they do. Um, engaging in exercise, Robert said, um, I would add to that, like learning how to um, do simple breathing exercises that can make a big difference um, in people's lives, their diet, you know, learning how to take walks and move slowly. Um, I would say that learning how to do a Sabbath rest, um, you know, that, that saying like, all work and no play makes Johnny a dull boy, or I don't know exactly what it goes, but it's, it, I think it should be, you know, changed to like, actually it makes Johnny a depressed boy because when you work all the time and you don't play, I, it just, it feels like it is a recipe for depression. It's a recipe for depleting those serotonin levels. And so you see this, and I see this, um, that depression is really hot in those in um, you know, difficult graduate programs or you know going through medical school, things that you just really have to give your all to. Um, if you're not you know, plugging that rest into your week, um, de depression and anxiety can be right around the corner. And really that's what happened to Robert. And he didn't get into the details of it, but he was overworking himself. And I think that was, 
probably the largest contributor to his breakdown was just burning the candle at both ends and um, and, and really just taking on everything that was out there that he could get his hands on. And so um, things like volunteering, journaling, you know, just to remember that, hey, I had a good day this week. I, I wrote it down. Like when it's a, a terrible day, you can go back and look. Um, joining support groups, prayer groups, um, groups with other people, you know, you would think like joining a depression support group, like that would make me more depressed. But there's something about not being in things alone that can really be a huge support to people. So, um, and then again, like things to avoid is, and, and maybe things to look out for, you know, when you think a friend is depressed, if they're throwing themselves into overworking, sometimes that's the temptation. It's like, I just don't want to feel bad, so I'm just gonna keep going. You know, I'm just gonna keep plowing through. Um, but that will exacerbate, you know, the problem, obviously. Alcohol and drugs, you know, I just, I want to forget about the problem, so I'm just going to go out drinking tonight with my buddies and try to forget and, again, exacerbates things. Um, you know, false intimacy, throwing um, themselves into relationships, compulsive eating, you know, trying to numb it out, um, trying to seek easy answers, like, I got this, I can do it, um, I can beat it on myself, um, and kind of insisting that you don't need people because um, there's never a time perhaps that you need people more than if you're going through a season of anxiety or depression. So um, tell me, yeah, what I, I could go on about some of these things, but I would love to know if y'all have any questions. Just can be, you know, things that went on with Robert, things that I've seen in my practice, um, really anything that could be helpful to you guys. you know, abused, you know, um, physically or sexually or anything like that, but I don't know, like I've never really looked at how, like my parents might have failed me, you know, because right there, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, so likely they failed you, you know, in some way, shape, or form. And if you have no capacity to say, in this way, in this way, I can see that my parents failed me, and, and they loved me well, you know, they did a lot of good for me, but there was some failure too. Like if that scares you and you're like, oh, I could never talk about any way my parents failed me, then that might be a sign that you might need to talk, you know, to someone about your story and your life because um, we're all going to um, have been sinned against in some way and it will shape how we sin. And that's just, you know, take it to the bank. That's just, that's just, that's covenant theology. You know, that's, that's what it is, you know, that the sins of, of, of the generations will visit, you know, the children. And so I think knowing what you're fighting, you know, knowing what you should be, you know, working towards, um, sometimes exploring, always exploring your family story can help you in that. Um, and counseling's a good place to do that. I really believe counseling has saved both of us, you know, a couple times over, you know, with things that we didn't see. And, um, and this particular counselor who came into our life during this time when all this was going on for, for Robert as now a very, you know, trusted, almost like a grandmother to us. And she has spoken into our lives so many times. And to my story, into Robert's story, into our marriage, into our parenting, into, you know, uh, the Lord has really blessed us through her. So there's my counseling plug. Even if you don't have something right there that you're thinking, I've got to go for this, um, you may still have something to go for. Any other questions? 
speaking on counseling, um, I know I've read a lot about this, and Robert, you alluded to this earlier, where um, there's a lot of discussion about uh, quote unquote good counseling versus bad counseling, where a good counselor is really important and can also get some other bad advice. So I was wondering if you all had any recommendations either here in Lexington or just in general what to look for in a good counselor. Yeah, so the problem with therapy is um, there, there, there really is a lot of bad therapy out there, especially if you, if a prereq if, if you want a Christian therapist. Um, so the Christian therapy world um, is a notoriously, um, uh, what would you, underqualified world, unregulated world. Yeah. yeah, and there's lots of different, you know, um, accrediting yeah. organizations. Um, you really want someone that's NCA accredited, which is a National Counseling Association. Yeah, definitely check their accreditation. Start center. So you don't want to see a non-licensed therapist. Because mm -hmm. anybody, like you tomorrow, could call yourself a life coach and hang a plaque out and say, I'm starting a counseling center, and and you can do it legally. Um, it's a very underregulated field. So start with accreditation. Um, when when you're looking at Christian counseling, I don't know if you want to initially get to like kind of the different. Probably not the large discussion. Not, about. We can. I mean, yeah. When you look at, when you're looking at Christian counseling, there's different perspectives uh, on it out there. There's some that maybe air a little bit more toward biblical counseling, which is basically saying, hey. A Bible and a, and a counselor is enough. Um, and on the other extreme, there would be therapy that you couldn't even recognize. You know, it, it's it's um, it wouldn't even be recognizable to have a be coming from a Christian worldview. Then there's an integrated approach that that essentially takes um, the science that's been done on um, the psychological science that's been done, social science that's been done. And integrated that with the Christian worldview, and um, really holds that balance well. So they're not afraid of the secular sciences, but they're also not afraid to to believe that um, that the scriptures are authoritative, that God's truth is authoritative, and 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 a good counselor has the skill to inter, interweave those things. Um, so a good like like so a good some good question like if you're in a therapy situation a therapist would be like if we're like medication is off limits that they're airing on the wrong side. If you're in a therapy situation where they're never getting into, um, um, they're perpetually living in your story and thinks that um, your freedom is on the other side of another introspection revelation. Um, Basically, their therapy is nothing but a downward cycle of introspection and never leads you towards repentance or leads you towards forgiveness. Um, that would be airing on the other side. Um, it's hard. I would ask, I mean, Sam, Abby yeah, would know. Abby's a great counselor. If you don't go to TCPC, you're welcome to see Abby. Um, uh, well, yeah. there are recommendations out there. Yeah, we could get you recommendations for sure. And for the hope folks, I think. If anybody attends Hope Fresh, Marsh, Doug Marshall has like a list yes. of 
He went on this career of saying where they interviewed every every counselor in the city <laughs> and, and has a list of mm -hmm. people he's like, yeah, I Marshall trust. Marshall is very, um, he's one definitely to check in with. And um, and that's where, you know, a trusted recommendation <laughs> is a good thing. You know, because if your counselor, you know, worth your weight, then you've got people that are saying, hey, I got a lot of good help from this person. You know, and so go to that person. You know, go to someone where it's like, you know, my best buddy went to him and he's really different. Like he's he's had a lot of growth. And um, but I I love what Robert said. Like a good Christian therapist should take, you know, secular psychology and, you know, weed out the bad. There's a lot of bad. And use the good with the Christian lens, you know, the Christian worldview. And that's why it takes a lot of work and a lot of wisdom and um and, and a lot of training, you know, to do that. And and then years of experience, you know you become more and more skilled and you've seen something before and so you, you recognize it, you know. Um, but at the same time, you know, every story is so different. And, and for me, it's just complete sacred grounds, you know, to be able to enter into someone's life story and to be able to hold the treasures of, you know, their most intimate, sometimes, you know, most embarrassing, most whatever moments of their life and help them try to make sense of them in light of what they're struggling with and how to find freedom, how to find healing. And ultimately, if you're not finding freedom or healing, you know, try to find another counselor, you know, because I think that's where you're moving. And it might take a couple of years where you're really feeling like, wow, I, I didn't really see this change. It's, it's slow sometimes. But I I think less about my um, myself when I walk into a room. Like, I, I feel more, you know, just at home in my own body, in my own, you know, himself and I, I, my, my self-critic that really harsh self-critic it sort of died down a little you know like I didn't really realize it was gone but it's, it almost feels like it's gone or you know something like that and it's like that's when you see you know you, you've had a lot of growth or you know it could be anything but that's just an example you know it can be really slow at, at coming and then all of a sudden you realize you're different um, but we can recommend counselors I just think go to Sam and he can get you you know because also there's just that that element of fit and rapport that you, you just, you know, you might say, well, I want to see a man. I wanted to, you know, uh, have a Christian worldview and, you know, Sam can get you a few names or, you know, whatever. So there's just, you know, you can find you the right person. Other questions? Anything else? Oh. Were you about to ask? So sorry. Yeah. Yep. Sam, yes. um, from talking to just like students and also from like my personal experience with mental health, I hope this doesn't come across the wrong way or I hope I'm phrasing it right. How, if someone that you love is struggling with mental health in a super unhealthy way, how do you protect yourself mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. that unhealthy mental health over at like trying to like remind them that you're there for them and you love them, but also like figuring out those boundaries. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, totally. Um, I think one like you should never be the only person, you know, caring for someone, especially if they're in more of like a mental health crisis or a moment that they need a lot of care. Um, you should not have a messiah complex where it's I can kind of come in and make things right for this person. You know, I think. The first thing you would really want to do is make sure they are seeing a mental health care professional and that that person kind of bears the burden of helping them get healthy um, and that you're more of that support person and then i would just say 
um, that that might be if you feel like you're losing all of your boundaries and all of a sudden someone is you know in your life 24 7 that that might be something um, that you work on personally you know like what is going on because I think that's a responsibility of the caregiver to say like I love you and I also have boundaries which are good for you and good for me you know because it's not good for anyone to have no boundaries and not to have you know some level of I can't save you I can't make this go away for you but I, I am here to love you and those boundaries are going to look different for each person um but I think that that is something that should be worked out in community as well hey what do you think I'm feeling really stressed so do you feel like I'm being selfish or am I just like is this overtaking me um like I'm tend to towards extroversion or introversion your friends know that about you and how many people is too many for you you know that's all an issue of community and working that out and making sure that you're in a healthy place Yeah, I think I think in loving people, particularly people who are in, in, in serious, um, you know, suicidal complex trauma, um, you know, um, things that you know, debilitating stuff. Yes. I think um, honesty, um, and when I say honesty. I have never had, I've walked with a lot of people through this. I've never had one of them respond poorly when I have said, I want to be honest that I don't have the capacity to fix you, care for you, love you completely. Um, I am not trauma qualified, trained. Um, I have some insights from my personal story and walking through people, but I am not a trauma specialist. Um, you need more help than I'm able to give, so I just want to be honest with you about what I can provide in a friendship. Um, clarity, they respond really well to clarity. They um, Loving people in this thing do not do, deal well in ambiguity. So like we have, we have someone that uh, we're walking with right now through that and we have made it, here's our clarity to you. Again, I was honest. Um, I have four kids. I'm pastoring a church. I'm, I've got this going on. I'm, I'm not a trauma specialist. I, I just want to be honest with what you can expect from me and my love for you. Um, and then I want to be clear, and our clarity is we do lunch with you um, once a month at this time where we'd love to make room for, for you in our life and, um, and you know, and we're, we're we're pretty, we stick to that. We're very, very clear. So uh, she reaches out to me multiple times all month. And I I feel the freedom to sometimes ignore the text, sometimes write back and say, hey, can't wait to talk about that at our Sunday lunch. You know, just stick to that real clear, clear communication. And then, I, and my other one is courage, because it, it takes a lot of courage to love someone well. So like, if, if somebody is suicidal, to to be willing to say, you're going to hate me, but I'm calling professionals. Um, to to have the courage to love them in a way they need to be loved, not in a codependent. Um, I might lose your friendship, or I might feel like I'm a risk you feeling betrayed by me or something like that. But I'm having the courage to love you the way you need to be loved, not necessarily the way you want to be loved. Um, yeah, but it's. It's hard, especially in your position where your job is caring for the hurting folks. Um, 
would say like I don't take complex trauma because I'm not specifically trained to do that level of you know crisis work. Like there are people that that's all they do, you know, and that's what they're. And so I would send someone with complex trauma, which is a more severe type of trauma, like a chronic abuse situation, um, and those who you know might have go into flashbacks or you know hear voices and you know kind of. Hallucinations, things like that. Like that's like kind of an its own sphere in the, even the counseling world. So, like, um, and that's that's kind of what we're talking about. That might not be the norm on the college campus. That's what this is going on with this person that we're loving in, in our lives. And, but we've had, you know, suicidal folks. You know, we've had to lock up the knives in our house, and they're sleeping on our couch. Like we've had all kinds of in ministry over the years, and so. Um, there's just new, you know, challenges all the time, and you're always having to ask yourself, like, is this the right way? Is this how God's calling me to love this person? You know, so it's not that we haven't ever had those, you know, folks that are really struggling in our home and in our lives, but in this particular case, for specific reasons, we felt like this is the best way. And so it's always like prayerfully kind of considering how do you love the specific people with the specific needs that God's placed into your life. So. This is an unusual situation, I would say. Is that phone number for Preston? Uh-huh. I think so. Okay. Is that a passive aggressive uh, way to say check your phone, Sam? I looked, I haven't seen any texts. Okay, yeah, no, I was putting it out there. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone texted, they are. Yeah, you can also text my number, but I haven't. Um, all right, well, hey, how about this? We'll do last. Any? How about a last question? Last question? Andy, yeah.
to walk with